1: Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am Christopher Hurtado, and I'm joined today by my co-host Ben Peterson. We are podcasting today on John 1. I have suffered in body and spirit and preparing to podcast on John 1 it is such a strange chapter isn't it Ben you have definitely
0: agonized over this i've um,
1: agonized yeah, it
0: is it's you know i didn't know how strange it was until studying it and reading through scholarly commentary and stuff on it this time and you know comparatively like i just took it for granted well this is just what john says not you know as something unique and
1: comparative to the other gospels and so yes it is unique for me even reading the nrsv translation didn't make it as strange as it is you know I, i've never read the greek i had only read king james version i read nrsv still not that strange but when i read sarah rudin's translation where she makes it a point to preserve the strangeness of the original, hmm. that's when it hit me how strange this is. I wish I could share it, but for copyright reasons, I don't think I can do that. I'm going to continue to read from the King James Version. By the way, let us know how you like that. If you hate it, let us know. Maybe we'll stop doing it. If you love it, maybe we'll keep doing it. We may have to ask you to donate it for, for the editors because they might not like <laughs> it. They're volunteers. It may take longer doing it this way, but so far we've managed So let's go into a little bit of introduction then of the strange book of John. John, you know, I I just want to read some quotes from one of my teachers. One of my teachers, he was my Latin instructor when I was an adjunct instructor of philosophy and political science at UVU. I had the benefit to take classes. I never saw any other adjuncts or heard of any other adjuncts doing this. I thought it was a good idea. I took advanced French, advanced Portuguese. I took a couple of semesters of Greek and a couple of semesters of Latin, and Ed was my advanced Latin instructor. We translated, you know, love poetry together and, and, you know, from Propertius and Catullus and some medieval stuff too. And so I also had him tutor me on the side in ancient Greek which I studied with Mike Shaw, and then also in Biblical Hebrew, though I didn't get very far with that. I wish I'd gone further. You know, Ben, I thought it was going to be easier to learn Hebrew with you know with Arabic, and it wasn't as easy <laughs> as I thought it would be. <laughs> I'm going to go back to it. I tell you, as we go into the New Testament, I realize, and I knew this from last time I went through the New Testament, I really need to know the Old Testament better. And at this point, I'm thinking, I really need to know Biblical Hebrew. But here's what he said. Now, he's a, a Biblical scholar himself. He said, John is the great symbol maker of the New Testament, as Paul is the theologian. So, Paul is the theologian. John is the great symbol maker. Mm. And he says, John is unique among the gospel writers in the way he uses metaphors, which for him ceased to be metaphors. And we see that right away in chapter one, that we go from a metaphor to, I'm using this metaphor, but I now mean it literally, right? Right. With the logos and and Jesus. So he says, Jesus is the lamb, Jesus is the vine, Jesus is the light, Jesus the brazen serpent, etc. These are these dramatic, fresh symbols, as Ed puts it, when he writes them. But for us now, all this time later as Christians, thanks to John, they become cliche. And so you read this strange chapter and it doesn't sound strange because you're used to it. You're used to hearing it. And so that's the beginning of my introduction. Let's go into the historical setting. Where is this coming from? This is the latest gospel. I've already mentioned how strange it is. I I think it goes without saying, but I'll just mention this. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are called synoptic because they can be seen together, right? Seen together. They compare with each other. John is not in that category. It's class apart, right? John is this strange, different thing. One of these things is not like the other. It seems to have been written late in the first century, And it looks like it belongs to a particular Christian community. Each one of these do, by the way. Each one of the Gospels and Paul's writings, they all have to do with particular Christian communities where there's not one unified church.
0: Not yet. So when you say communities, Christopher, we're not talking something that could be called
1: a sect yet, right? no not really just paul goes around paul's our earliest writer and he goes around starting communities yeah churches will say church really means gatherings right just these assemblies of people i remember during the pandemic my baptist preacher neighbor did not stop having services at his church because the bible said to meet right church means you meet it's church isn't something you do online you do it in person And so, that was his take on that here in Bakersfield, where I live. So, it seems that this community is having trouble with the Jews, as John calls them. Now, we don't have to read this as all Jews, right? It could be Judeans. So, there could be like this Galilee-Judea rivalry. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, there's something going on with these guys where they are just getting kicked out of synagogues. But that doesn't mean... The Jews, you know, and this is the problem, right? That this book, as it becomes canon and as we move through the Middle Ages and beyond, it just leads to more and more anti Semitism and Christianity. And I think, you know, we have to get to a place where we understand that and where we're beyond that. We're already beyond that, but we need to understand that we're beyond that so that we don't fall back into it, right? So, whatever this community is dealing with, with the Judeans or the Jews, they're having issues that are specific to them and local. They're not all of Judaism against Christianity. That's not what's happening. And yet, ironically, right, we're going to end up with all of Christianity against Judaism because of these writings. Anything to add to that, Ben? So, with the references to the Jews, like you say, you know,
0: that may be a a correct translation or like a literal translation, right? But as you said, when you start coming into our time, especially with a, a century behind us of... You know, intense anti-Semitism. Retranslating that to something that gives more of an idea of what the intention and the context of that is to something like Judeans, like you said, makes more sense. Also, typically when John uses the term the Jews and he's using it in some sort of antagonistic kind of way, he's not referring to a group of people. He's referring to authorities within the community
1: that's a good point
0: when he says the Jews he's talking about you know maybe certain Sadducees or certain Pharisees or certain scribes people that are part of the authorities of the people that are are antagonistic towards Jesus and the Christians in general because they represent a challenge to their authority, not that he's referencing the Jews as a people or as a faith or as a community as a whole.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, Ben. The aim of this gospel is clearly stated in chapter 20, verse 31, and I quote from the King James Version, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. This is the crux, right? In this book, we get that Jesus is the Son of God and that you have to believe in him, and we get these long speeches by Jesus himself telling us these things, and we don't see that anywhere else. We don't see it in Paul. We don't see it in the other gospels. That's part of what's unique about this book.
0: One of the things that we see also through this statement, Christopher, is the intention of the author is to increase our faith and our relationship with God through Christ. It's not to tell us some historical account or to increase our knowledge of some particular event.
1: Right, yeah. J- just like he's going to make comparisons to Genesis with Jesus and and with wisdom None of that's about physics, right? Uh-huh. It's more more like metaphysics, right? Yep. We have this tradition that goes back to the second century that says that the author of this gospel is John, the son of Zebedee, who's one of Jesus's disciples. And the book itself tells us that it's, you know, there's this disciple whom Jesus loved, quote unquote. And it seems to connect that disciple with the writing of this book. And then, of course, this beloved disciple we have identified with John, and so then this becomes the Gospel of John. But none of that is in the text itself. Right. We don't see anywhere where it identifies the author. Like the other gospels, this is written by people who weren't not with Jesus. You know, Jesus is dead and buried, or dead and resurrected, I should say, for you know, two generations when he's writing this, a couple of generations. And we don't really know who he was. But the ideas are attributed to this John. Who's a disciple, maybe the son of Zebedee, who's maybe the beloved of Jesus.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the points here is that, you know, we say not written by somebody who experienced Jesus, but we're talking about its final form. There's certainly sources that you can trace back to, like we talked about with the other gospels. There's sources where you could say, oh, this definitely goes back to some primary source or some saying of Jesus or, Or something else from an earlier time. But the actual product that we have now in the book of John would have been somebody at a later time. The author, like you said, isn't named. And so even though it's conventionally attributed to John, the son of Zebedee, he's almost certainly not the author. The author, maybe the author still is named John. But John is a really common name, so <laughs> this could still be John, but it's there's a lot of even historical Johns other than John the son of Zebedee that this could be, or it could just be somebody else entirely.
1: Yeah, I may have to go with John the Beloved versus John the Baptist because we already have two Johns in this chapter. We have the one that we attribute yeah. the writing to, and we have the one he's writing about, right? I've
0: been saying John, son of Zebedee. That sounds specific to me. You know, John the Beloved seems to say, oh, that means that the disciple whom Jesus loved must be John the son of Zebedee, and that's never specified either.
1: No, it's not. That's what the tradition tells us. Yeah. Good point. It looks like it was composed in different stages, and it could have been by the same author, right? But there are clues that that show us that that there are things that are added on later, you know, parts that are earlier, parts that are later. There's that too. Do you have anything to, to say about that, Ben?
0: Even if it's different people, it's definitely the same idea and perspective right that is being conveyed here even if we're talking about different stages this is the same tradition the same perspective the same theology that goes into this book
1: as we go into it as we start to go through the text you know we get the first part here of the word becoming flesh we're all familiar with these passages again from the king james version the word becomes flesh this first part verses 1 through 18 This is a prologue, and at least some of the parts of the prologue, if not the whole thing. They look like they're this original separate poem that gets adapted for the purpose of this book. And so you can really feel that too, can't you? When you read those first verses, there's something about them that they have this poetic quality, even if there's not meter or rhyme or even rhythm. There's rhythm. There is rhythm, right? But there's not necessarily meter or rhyme or anything like that. And it's not even like Old Testament poetry that we went into and when we podcasted in the Old Testament, but there's this poetic value or quality to these writings.
0: Yeah, this is beautiful language, right? You, you you talk about that sometimes. This is this is something that you don't just read, that you feel as you read it. Yeah. I was realizing something as I was going through the verses this time and it's going to come up in particular when we comment on them. And this was a different type of exercise. We've hinted at some of these things or maybe not just hinted, talked about this in in previous podcasts, but maybe we haven't mentioned this specifically in a while, but this idea of Christ not being the last name of Jesus, right? Christ as a person Jesus is Christ but we are also called to follow him which means we're also called to be Christ's plural in in that sense. And this is a concept that that exists within our religious tradition, you know, that we are to be like Christ. We take upon ourselves his name. There's an idea here that comes up often when we analyze these types of scriptures or approach them psychologically, if we posit that the Christ, then, is something like our true self. What if we look at these 18 verses psychologically? What does this say about our true self or the Christ that is in each of us? Taking that perspective and then reading these verses, I got something different out of it than I had before, and it was very interesting.
1: I love that. Do you want to go into that now or later? Let's
0: just go into it as we go through the verses, yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Before I go into this, I'm, I'm reading from KJV. I'm going to continue to read that into the record, but I'm going to do something a little bit different this time. I just think this chapter needs a little bit of help to understand it because I'll give you an overview. What's happening here as the word becomes flesh, as we say, is that that word word is the Greek logos. Logos. Some know this, right? Many know this, right? But what does that mean? Do we? Do they really know what this means? Some may even be students of Stoicism because that's popular again. We go through stages of Epicureanism and Stoicism, and when things are going really well, it's Epicurean, and when things aren't going well, we go into Stoicism, and so that's back on the rebound again, and that happens over and over through the centuries. And so there is a Stoic logos that I think we can say is part of the concept here. That John is employing. But at the same time, it also goes back to wisdom, Sophia, in Proverbs and in some of the apocryphal writings, and all the way back to the word, which isn't really, it's not the Sophia, it's not a Logos necessarily, it's Dabar, the spoken word that we see in Genesis. And so what we're going to see is the word, or the Logos, is going to become light. The light is going to become Man and the man is Jesus. Is that a good summary, Ben?
0: Yeah, there's definitely a progression or a sort of you know A equals B equals C kind of thing going on here,
1: right? And as I mentioned from from Ed Firmage, these metaphors that John employs they become not metaphors, right? We go mm-hmm. from the Logos is the light, is the man, is Jesus, and now Jesus is literally. The way he sees it is literally the Logos, right? But Logos is this Greek word that means speech. It means word. Word's a good translation, right? Word, speech, sentence, paragraph, rational principle, argument even, right? Maybe your thesis could be a Logos, right? (laughs) If you're Mm -hmm. writing a paper, all of that. One of the reasons that I fretted so much over this chapter is, well, first, I know a lot about the Stoic Logos, and, and where that comes from, it actually goes all the way back to Heraclitus. And I, and I will mention this from Heraclitus on through the Stoics. This is the organizing principle of the cosmos, of right. the universe, right? Cosmos it can be translated world. It can be translated universe. It's the created order of things that we get from Genesis, right? That we go from chaos, which is disorder, to cosmos, which is order. And how that happens is through the word. Now, again... We can compare it to the word that God uses to create in Genesis, but that's really not quite the same thing. That's more of a spoken word, a dabar, as it's called in Hebrew. Here, this Greek idea of logos goes beyond that to what's behind those words, right? this organizing rational principle. Ben, in your study Bible, you shared with me a very succinct explanation of the logos. Again, one of the reasons I fretted so much is I know too much about this. Give me Quote me that, you know, succinct version of this logos idea. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It says, In the beginning, at least that that phrase right there from Genesis 1-1, affirms the primordial aspect of the word, that is, the Greek logos. Logos is multivalent. In Jewish tradition, logos represents God's wisdom, a creative agent that eternally coexisted with God. By the first century, God's wisdom was often equated with Torah. First century CE Stoic philosophy used logos to reference the ordering rational principle of the cosmos.
1: There it is. So the other thing to notice is that the logos as it relates to Sophia, right, wisdom in Proverbs and in the Apocryphal writings... That's going to be feminine. And so another thing that's happening here in this first chapter that I'll try to bring out in my reading by substituting some of the original words and pronouns, instead of going with exactly what King James says, is that John is taking advantage of homonyms and his, and, and pronouns to go from metaphor to something more literal, right? Okay, so let's go into this. Verse one, in the beginning was the word reads the KJV. I'm going to read Logos every time I read Word, and if I see a pronoun that refers back to the Logos, I'm going to read Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God, so the same as the Logos again. All things were made by, it says, Him but it's really just a masculine pronoun to go with Logos. So all things were made by the Logos. So what happens here right away by verse 3, if you're already a Christian, and it's all these years on from the time this was written, you read him and you just know it's Jesus. Now, that's where he's going to end up. That's where John is going with this, but he's not there yet. You already know what the surprise is. (laughs) Right. He's just saying all things were made by the Logos, and without the Logos was not anything made that was made in the Logos was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, if you're wondering why the Logos wouldn't be it, we have gendered pronouns in Greek, just like if you studied Spanish, right? El, la, right? This is the idea. So, and there are neuter too, and that that makes it even more interesting. There are neuter pronouns. So, in the Logos was life, and the life was the light of man. So, we just went from Logos, we related that to light, right? The light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So we can see here again this primordial image of the darkness over the deep, the chaos, right? And that the Logos is going to be this word, whether, again, not like the bar necessarily, but taking advantage of the fact that this is maybe something that translates word. Although Logos is more like this, again, this rational principle than it is just a spoken word or a matter of a thing, right? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this isn't John the Beloved. This is John the Baptist. I'm saying John the Beloved, meaning the purported author of the text, right? So this is John the Baptist. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. And even the light, this is <laughs> this is where the, the pronoun thing happens, right? It starts to happen right here in verse 7. So the same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, That all men through him. So here's the thing. That him could be the light or it could be a person. And so we're starting to see a transition. It turns out the light, phos, is this neuter noun that would be it. But there's also phos meaning a person, a man actually, a man. So we can take advantage of this, right? If you're John, rhetorically, you can take advantage of this and make this switch from it to him.
0: So I have a question about that, Christopher. Is that word phos, is that just a word that happens to have two different meanings? Or is that actually two different words that happen to be spelled the same?
1: I don't know, Ben. Okay. (laughs) That's a really good question. They are homonyms, right? Meaning they're words that sound the same and they have different meanings. One is light, one is man. They're spelled exactly the same way. And so he goes from light to man. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. So, he is John, right? John the Baptist is not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, something that's going on here is, we already read this in Luke, right? Jesus goes to John the Baptist to get baptized? We have not. We haven't read that yet. Mm -mm. It's confusing to go through the text this way, you know, when we don't go through the whole book all at once. So, we know that's coming, though. So, when Jesus goes to get baptized by John the Baptist, the problem with that is it looks like Jesus is a follower of John. And when you get baptized, the one who baptizes is above the one who he baptizes, who's beneath him, right? And so that doesn't look right for by the time John is writing this or whoever's writing this, John needs to be a follower of Jesus, not the other way around. And so if you feel like, and maybe you don't because you haven't thought about this this way, but if you do feel like John doth protest too much, as Shakespeare would put it, it's because, yes, he's trying to bring out that, no, Jesus is not a follower of John, John is a follower of Jesus, even though it looks like Jesus is following John.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, the fact that he mentions he's not that light, you know, means that he needs to, you know, he needs to bring that up because there was an idea that he was or there was an an assertion that there was some sort of rivalry between the followers of John and Jesus.
1: Exactly. Otherwise, why bring it up? And that's what I mean by methinks, the lady doth protest too much, right? Or John doth protest too much. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now we're with him, right? This him is now the man, right? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So, Christopher,
0: the... Question that came up for me when I read this verse is, you know, who are his own? I think that at some point previously, when I would read this verse, I thought, oh, he's talking about the Jewish people or the Israelite people that he mortally came to, right? But there's also an idea here that it's not just those people, it's actually humanity in general that he came to. Then I realized, you know, as I was reading through this and saying, I'm going to look through this psychologically not just about Jesus, but how is this about me or about my efforts to follow Christ? So if we speak psychologically of the Christ that is in us or the light that is in us, what might we say about the Christ-like attributes that we may sometimes not receive, but are actually our own, they're part of our true self? So as I was thinking through that, I, I remembered the episode that you and Riley did with Morgan a little while back. And one of the ideas that was brought up in that about the shadow was that the shadow isn't necessarily the bad things. The shadow is the things that you have not accepted as part of yourself, but they are part of yourself. And so you've pushed them away. And so I was realizing that that is a similar concept here, that he came unto his own and his own received him not. What are the things that are part of our true self that we don't receive? And that if we did, we would actually find ourselves more fully taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, more fully
1: becoming who our true self is. Yeah, that episode is called The Shadow, and we did record that with Morgan Aldis, who we've had on the podcast two or three times to talk about alchemy. At least the other two times we talked about alchemy, and then we talked about shadow work in the episode called The Shadow. That's a really good point you bring up, Ben. Going back to
0: verse 1, Christopher, you mentioned that in the Hebrew thought, the logos could be equated with wisdom, which, especially in Proverbs 8, is a divine feminine concept. And the idea was that that was in the beginning with God as well. Well, that made me think of Doctrine and Covenants section 93, which says this, it says, Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. So there's the light. Yeah. What we're getting in our tradition here is that not just Christ was in the beginning with God, or not just Jesus, you know, for John here as he makes this progression, but we were, mankind was. We are part of this logos in some way, right? We exist as part of God's intelligence in the beginning. And for me, that broke open all these 18 verses as not just being about Jesus, but also being about me or you, right?
1: I love that, Ben. Picking up at verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, a couple things here, the idea of believing on the name, this is important because as we saw back in the Old Testament, you want to know God's name. If you don't have the right name, then you're not really facing in the right direction, so to speak, right? When you pray, you want to address the right God by the right name. When you think about God, you want to think about God in the right way. And this is a problem for many of us, really, probably for all of us, because as we say in Spanish, God doesn't fit in your head, you know? I remember somebody in grad school, one of my classmates saying, Chris, God doesn't have to fit into your logic. And I thought that was a really great line, right? He doesn't have to fit into your logic. But we do have this idea that we want to have a handle on God. And yet the question is, can we really comprehend God? That's an intentional reference to comprehending the light, right?
0: So we discussed this concept of God's name a little bit ago as well, Christopher. It seems of particular importance to the Jewish tradition or to Judaism and even the people at this time Because of how they felt about their uniqueness and the uniqueness of the God that they worshiped. And that does contrast with the Greek idea that you see in Greek writing, especially like Herodotus or something, where the Greeks will go around and they will see these other gods, quote unquote, other gods, and they'll say, oh, that's not actually another God. They just call it by a different name. But to the Jews, to the Israelites, that was not the case. It wasn't a God called by a different name. It was a different God. Right. And so believing on the name is important. This name becomes, as Rudin was saying, you know, as you you were talking about, it becomes that essence of identity.
1: That's a really good point for you know for their context, right? I'm with Herodotus, though. And I think, you know, nowadays we have to be, right? We've, in, in that same conversation, when we talked about that, mm-hmm. we mentioned the idea that, you know, people say that Muslims worship a moon god, yeah. you know, named Allah. And Allah is just the Arabic word for God. It's the word that's used in the Bible by all Arab Christians for God. It's the word used in the Book of Mormon translation into Arabic by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints for right. God. We don't say, even though Dios, the Spanish Dios comes from Zeus, right? You've heard Zeus. The correct pronunciation is more like Zeus. And so, Dios comes from Zeus, but we don't think that Hispanics are worshiping Zeus, right? When they Mm -hmm. say they worship Dios, Right. right? right? In our day and age, it's not so much the name that matters. But backing up a little bit to the same verse, right? As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So, all you have to do... To be a son of God is to accept that you're a son of God. It's something like that, right? Mm-hmm. You, you receive him and you're a son of God. I'll have more to say about being a son of God. Well, if we go back to that concept in the
0: previous verse about the shadow and integrating the shadow and accepting those parts of our true self that we have rejected or not received… Yes. That when we do, then we become who we truly are. We become sons of God, right? Or children of God would be a better translation. This is King James Version saying sons of God. But really, that is a, a more inclusive term, meaning children of God.
1: That's right. Well put, yeah. So verse 13, which we're born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, this is another place where the author, I'll say John, is very clever with his language, because the Greek, ginomai, which means, well, it can mean to birth, it can mean to be born, right? But sometimes Greek verbs are a little more ambiguous, right? So you have ginao, which concentrates on the biology of birth, and you have tikto, which is more to do with procreation production, right? Maybe agriculture, these kind of things, and has to do with obtaining heirs so that your family continues, Right. But kinomai means to be or to become or to come into being, which includes to be born. And so there's some ambiguity here, right? You, you can either become or be. And if by the way, if you, if you be, you already are, so you're not becoming. And it may not have anything to do with being born at all. Hmm. It can be any one of these. Things. And so what, what you see with some of these ancient writers, this one, maybe Cicero comes to mind. I remember reading some Cicero in Latin where, Cicero uses a term that I know has multiple meanings, and when you translate, you have to pick one, right? We have to say born. Only in giving a gloss can you say this word also means this, and Cicero probably meant both at the same time, maybe even more than both. Sometimes there are more than two meanings. And so a good good writer who really knows their stuff is going to do something like this, going to take advantage of these ambiguities and give us something I want to say magical, Ben. I mean, it's magical, right? Well, what are the
0: implications of, if you were to translate that differently, Christopher, even maybe theologically or or whatever, what are the implications?
1: This is a theological gospel, more so than the Mm -hmm. synoptic gospels, right? It's later, we are running into Jews, as John puts it, in the synagogue who don't agree with our ideas of God, our Christology, if you will. This is high Christology. So, if you're not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But rather, you don't become by the flesh, but from God, right? Or you don't come into being, or something like something other than being born. It might change something, right? So, I, I think I would leave that to the listener to reflect upon. Do you have something to say about it? I don't. I was just curious maybe if Rudin had some commentary
0: on the nuances of meaning there. I mean, I know that things like this, you know, being created or begotten or become right these become important distinctions when you get to the later sectarian christianity and like the councils where they have confessions of faith that that specify exactly who jesus is and so they get into these kinds of terms it's not something that in my religious experience i have felt important to delve into but i know that to a lot of people it is and so i think that the implications of a of a nuanced translation here could end up, you know,
1: going different ways theologically. So, okay, I'm going to shy away from all that, but <laughs> while you were talking about that, I reread the verse and I do have an answer, okay? So, here's my alternative reading. Rather than being born, you're not born, not from blood, not from flesh, right? But of God, this birth of God, this, you know, this rebirth is what it's going to become. Right, in the tradition, in the Christian tradition, uh-huh. this idea of baptism, of dying, coming alive again, resurrection. You don't have to die to be resurrected, right? You die to your old self, you become resurrected to the new self. Yeah, this the is the idea that's going to come up in chapter 3 of John. Right. Yeah. This is a becoming. Mm-hmm. This is a becoming. It's not a being born. I mean, we can talk about it as being born, and and probably we're dealing with the same verb again. But it's right? that come metaphorically.
0: Out. It's more literally becoming, metaphorically being born.
1: Born. Exactly. So we're still in the first 18 verses, and yet there's sort of a sub-point here, right? Verses 14 through 18 are gonna take us back to Mount Sinai. There are references here back to Mount Sinai. Moses wanted to see God's glory, but he was told what? No one could see God. And yet God was revealed to Moses. How is he revealed? He's full of chesed, right? We talked about this so much this steadfast love, this loving kindness. And there are these concepts, right, that, that that are related to grace and truth, right? Love and faithfulness, grace and truth are all related. And I'll go into grace a little bit more as we go through the text here. And the word was made flesh. The logos was made flesh. Now, as much as we've talked about the logos, I have to say one more thing about it at this point. So far, everything that the logos is doing in this text makes sense in the context in which this is being said, right, in in late antiquity, in the first century. But the idea that that Stoic Logos, or even, you know, Sophia, could become flesh, that's strange. That's really strange. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, here's the thing with this verse of him dwelling among us what it literally says in the text is that he pitches a tent and that image again takes us back to the tabernacle right it takes us back to sinai it takes us back to the wilderness right after the exodus the only begotten of the father this is going to be important because of inheritance right in the jewish tradition there are going to be inheritance laws and it's going to be most favorable to be the firstborn son and so that's part of what's going on here and then there's this grace thing. What is grace? Grace comes from the Latin gratia. And actually in Spanish we say gracias to say thank you. It's an acknowledgement of the grace that we're receiving, that we're giving thanks for. So the meaning of this word is basically gift or favor, right? If you're receiving a favor or a gift or goodwill or mercy, something with some kind of you know natural appeal or thankfulness. And this is all from, from Rudin, you know, she she has a great glossary. She again makes it a point to bring out the strangeness of the original text in her translation by sometimes leaving the words untranslated or by giving you a fresh perspective in her translation. And so she has this great glossary. So this word is related to the Latin, right? Is caris. And caris is related to charity right so and, and caritas yeah yeah caritas right for me this is one of the most important terms in the new testament the the jesus is going to give an image of god as one who has grace or as i mentioned earlier mercy and that word for mercy is going to be related to the womb it's going to be something that envelops us like the womb of our mothers And again, Sofia is a feminine. You've already brought up the divine feminine, that principle. One more thing. The Spanish formal form of address is usted, right? If you studied Spanish, you may already know this. Mm -hmm. Usted. It's abbreviated. Vede. It's an abbreviation of vuestra merced, your grace. It's like saying Lord to someone, right? I did not
0: know it was an abbreviation of that. That is so interesting. There's an interesting difference in translation here, Christopher, that I came across between the King James and the NRSV. So, this part here where it says, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, right? So, we have this definite article, the, and then we have a capitalized Father, right? So, this is ostensibly a direct reference to God the Father in this translation of the King James Version. However, NRSV translates it differently. It says, as of a father's only son. In other words, this becomes indefinite. It becomes, you know, just a father, some typical father, their only son, not specifically talking about God the father and his son, or in other words, not talking specifically about Jesus, but talking about the concept of a father's only son. And I thought that was a striking difference in translation especially considering the the theme that I'm kind of following here with this isn't just about Jesus it's about us right
1: Yeah so what does that mean to you then Ben
0: As we were talking here you know that verse 14 says the word was made flesh and you were talking about how that would be sort of edgy like this is a striking concept is something new here the idea that this would be made flesh and again within our tradition we have the idea that our intelligence was in the beginning with god so not only is jesus made flesh right but we are made flesh through that same process you know earlier you were talking about that the concept of the logos and how it's the word but not necessarily the spoken word right it's it's this this argument this rational argument behind that but the reason that we say the word is used because metaphorically, we talk about our speech. Our speech is what we put out into the world, how we attempt to organize the internal. So it's, it's how we present our ideas in as much a rational way as we can. But internally to our own thought pattern, the words that we express don't always convey the same meaning to me it's like the word is this attempt at least in a, in a mortal sense right like in an imperfect human sense this attempt to order the chaos of our minds out into the world right and to present that and so i think of this as almost like okay if you were to take a human attempt at at doing that we might call that speech or the word right in a sense but god he does it perfectly. So when God speaks, he brings truth into being, just like in Genesis, right? And so that's why we get this concept of the logos, which, which is much bigger than the word, quote unquote. But when a human speaks the word, you know, it's just sort of a, a frail attempt at, at mimicking what God does when God speaks the word and, and truth is created.
1: You know, Ben, as you say all this, it occurs to me that this is how journaling works for me mm. and it's why I do it. It's at least one reason to do it because you do this with words even by yourself and it's easier to do it if you can pin them down, right? If you can do it on paper. And so when you write, it's not just because you have something to say, it's you have something to say because you write. Well, yeah, sometimes you don't know
0: what you think until you actually say it. And you're like, wait, do I really think that? Exactly. And you say, oh, no, I, I do really think that. Or no, that's not quite right. That's not really what I think. And so, it allows you to order, I think, the, what might be externally manifest as as chaotic thought right. into an ordered process. And so, again, it's that process by which we, we try to create the order out of our mind, our internal experience.
1: Yeah. And I've been guilty of avoiding or evading doing this work. Mm. Because as you mentioned, Ben, as you, as you begin to write your thoughts, which you're actually having while you're writing, right? writing is a form of thinking, you realize, no, that's not quite it. And then it becomes difficult. And then you, you can either press on or quit. And I've done both. <laughs> I've, qu- I've quit at times. I want to read from the translation of Rudin too on this verse. And the spoken word, the true account, that's the Logos, became flesh and blood and built a shelter, that's the tent, Hmm. and sojourned among us. And we gazed on his splendor, a splendor that a father's only son has. Ah, there it is. Full of joyful favor and truth, which is something like, this is like the joy or splendor, sorry, the splendor that a father's only son has. So picking up at verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried saying, I think this cried is actually shouting. (laughs) He's actually shouting in the wilderness. This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Again, this is a strong insistence by the writer that John is not the Messiah and that there's some kind of rivalry going on here. Otherwise, again, that doth protest too much, right? And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, he uses Christ as though it were the last name of Jesus, right? Jesus Christ. I like saying Jesus the Christ better just to remind myself that Christ is something that we can say of Jesus, Mm -hmm. that as you've pointed out, Ben, we can also say of ourselves. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, this is strange because we already know, and I mentioned this already, that Moses saw God in some sense, right? Yeah. And yet we get here that no man has seen God For goodness any sake, Jacob only... wrestled with him. and Yes, yes, indeed. Sometimes I ask myself, what's the apologetic reading, right? Yeah. Okay, so maybe if Jesus is Yahweh, then Moses saw Jesus, not God. I don't know. That's not my answer, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it, maybe you could delve into the word see,
0: right? Because like, the first thing I think of when... When you say no one has seen God, I actually think of Hajar or Hagar, right? Where she actually says, I saw God, right? Well, maybe she's a woman, so she doesn't count for this no man has seen God. I don't know. That's probably not what it means. (laughs) Maybe what you, you could say here is if we're trying to be apologetic about this verse, okay, hath seen God, like hath known, hath truly understood, fully seen God, fully understood who he is. Like where Hagar says, God saw me, right? He really saw me.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't know, Ben. For me, I'm starting to feel like I'm showing up here as not having done my homework. (laughs) I have to confess I didn't think of everything. (laughs) And so, I will go do my homework on this verse. I may have more to say about it later. And that reminds me of something that I didn't say maybe last time. Was it last time? We, ben, you and I talked about this idea of opening the womb, right? That the mm-hmm. firstborn, I, you read it as opening the womb is the being the firstborn. Right. I think that opening the womb, and I looked at other translations, just means being born. that um, being born, right? And so, in the King James Version, it says that if you are a male, you're holy. And by holy, we should understand set apart. Right. And actually, I mean, you really should actually be sacrificed, except that there's a caveat that says, okay, not human males, they don't have to be sacrificed. You can sacrifice instead. We saw Mary and Joseph with two turtle doves instead. Right. Right. But I really want to focus in on the second part of this first. The part that says that the only begotten son, not that part, but which is in the bosom of the father. I thought, what is this in the bosom of the father? What do we mean by this? I thought, is bosom really the best translation? Lap is another translation. I think it's somewhere in between. And I, and I mean that literally and figuratively, right? I think of the womb again. But let's go with lap, actually. I want to go with lap and, and see what I can bring out here. There's an image that Cleopatra, the Egyptian Cleopatra, right? She popularized an image of herself holding her infant son against her chest. There's the bosom, right? And also, at the same time, in her lap, right? Against her chest, in her lap. And this was a propagandistic reflection of an earlier image, which is the goddess Isis with her son Horus. And then this later on becomes, in the Christian tradition in the Middle Ages, just go Google Madonna and child. Right. You'll see so many paintings so many statues of the Madonna and Child of Mary holding the baby Jesus in her lap against her bosom right and so to me that's what i saw in this verse it's interesting right that we take the divine feminine the the wisdom of proverbs the sophia that we can relate to this idea of logos and that it becomes this it becomes a son and so then we get this son in the lap of the father but this is going to revert back to the lap of the mother in the Christian imagination, I'll say.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Christopher, this is also the fruitful tree, right? I mean, this is the sun hanging on the image of the divine feminine, the tree, which what is what happens later when we have Christ on the cross. Nephi has this vision as well because he has the tree of life and the fruit on the tree. Well, what's the fruit? It's the love of God. And what's the tree? Oh, well, that's manifest by him seeing the mother of the Son of God. All of these images are definitely related to a divine feminine concept of this fruitful tree. And to posit that Christ is there in the bosom and the lap. It's both, right? Because when you have a child in your lap, it's also in the mother's bosom as well. And then in between those is the womb. So it's not one or the other. It's all of those.
1: Yes. Do you remember, Ben, in what episode we covered that? Because we talked about this back in Deuteronomy. We mentioned that when Nephi has his vision, when he wants to see his father's vision himself— He sees the vision and he wants to understand the fruit, and he gets shown a virgin with child. And you think, What has this got to do with the vision? No, well, you don't think that. That's the funny thing is you read it and you think, Oh, of course, right? Of course. Yeah. But if you think about it, skip over the symbolism and the imagery. (laughs) Right. And so, how does that help him understand? And the answer is because he's familiar with the concept of the tree or as it appears in the King James version the sacred poles those are related to the divine feminine for him and so he can now understand the dream because of that context that he has that we don't have or that now you do have right
0: and that ties into something you were talking to me about earlier Christopher with Jesus being the aesthetic logos right and i think that comes up with these images that are are very popularized in Christianity in general. I mean, you know, Protestantism and then the Latter-day Saint tradition as sort of a, an abstract of that because of, you know, the American experiment and everything has has sort of distanced themselves from these types of images, but they are an aesthetic representation of this love of God, this logos, this argument of God for his love, right, that we've discussed.
1: Right, from this very book, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? right? And so you get that. And so the other thing, too, about this aesthetic argument, or logos, as you put it, as I've said before, probably in Latter-day Contemplation, probably more than once, you know, if logos can be translated as argument, which is one of its valid translations, you know, then instead of God's argument being words— Ironically, it's not words, right? I'm not going to use that. It's not dabad, right? Like in Genesis. Then what he may be doing is God may be saying, look, I'm not going to give you words because there's something I'm trying to communicate here that doesn't fit into words. It's ineffable. So behold, the man becomes his argument. So this is my argument. Behold the man. If you follow him, right? Because he's inviting us to follow him. It's a journey. Then you're seeing God's argument. In the flesh, as it were. The next section, Ben, deals with the testimony of John the Baptist, verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Again, these Jews, we should think Jewish authorities, right? Not just random people, Jewish authorities. And they're actually identified in verse 24 as the Pharisees. The Gospel of John can really be odd sounding when it talks about the Jews, right? Because it sounds like Jesus isn't a Jew or John isn't a Jew, right? And and some of the Christians are going to become, you know, are going to be Gentiles. In fact, they're going to become the majority starting with Paul. But right now we're dealing with Jews. So we should think of this as these Jewish authorities, these Pharisees that come to see what's going on. And we can compare this with Nephi. Nephi talks about the Jews as though he weren't one of them. Again, there's this difference between the Galileans and the Judeans. That could be a part of it too. There could be a rivalry there. We don't really know.
0: When you're talking about, I mean, in Nephi's context, one of the possibilities here, and I know you and I, Christopher, had like an hour conversation about what does Nephi mean by this. But part of what can be going on with Nephi is that there's still this rivalry between the Northern and, and Southern Kingdom, even though that the, the Northern Kingdom has already gone into exile by the time of Nephi. And so, also is referring to, you know, the tribe of Judah as opposed to the Ephraimites or the Josephites, right, of the north, the kingdom of Israel.
1: And in fact, even the, you know, Judah is going to be the representative tribe. It's not the only one. It's just, we're going to call the south Judah and we're going to call the north Israel. We talked about that.
0: Which by Jesus's time, you know, that area, that land, and by abstraction, then the people art Samaria the Samaritans right so these are heretics at this time
1: yeah and he confessed and denied not but confessed i am not the christ this is john the baptist saying this and they asked him what then art thou Elias and he saith i am not art thou that prophet and he answered, no. So many of the Jews expected a return of Elijah, and they also expected the rise of a prophet like Moses. So that's where these questions are coming from. So are you Elijah, the one we've been expecting to return? Are you like Moses? We've been expecting that too. No, he answers. Now that's fascinating to me,
0: Christopher, because there does seem to be, I mean, you could probably reconcile this in, in multiple ways, but there's there's a little bit of a contradiction here because in Matthew chapter 11 verse 10 Jesus calls John the Baptist Elijah he calls him that yeah even though John the Baptist is saying that I'm I'm not Elijah I'm not Elias now you could probably say well John didn't know he was but Jesus knew he was so <laughs>
1: <laughs> here's what I'm gonna say Ben two different authors two different times right this one's writing a generation later and different contexts different communities different purposes even and these gospel writers tell us their purposes I read you. John's. Luke told us at the beginning of his book what he was up to, right? And Matthew has something he's doing too. And as we go through these texts, hopefully we'll be able to bring that out for you and you'll be able to see what each one of these authors is doing and the context in which they're doing it, right? Then said they unto him, who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Again, that's shouting. Shouting in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Esaias. This is interesting because he's actually quoting here from Isaiah 40, verse 3. But there's something more to this quote, right? There's a lot to this quote. Yeah. I'm not sure how much time we can
0: spend on this, Christopher. but goodness. So, the quote is from the Septuagint translation. And the question is, where do the quotes belong in the original Hebrew? Okay, so do you get a voice crying, quote, in the wilderness, prepare the way? So the words in the wilderness are part of the quote. They're part of what the voice is saying. Or do you get a voice crying in the wilderness, quote, prepare the way? You know, this may seem like, well, why does this matter? But there can arise from this important distinction because if what. John is doing here by quoting this verse is he is equating John the Baptist with the voice in the wilderness and it's important for the character of John because John is literally, you know, in the story, in the narrative he is physically in the wilderness whereas the original Hebrew the quotes appear to be probably more around the words prepare the way not in the wilderness. And right. the prophet in that instance is speaking about the return of the Israelites from Babylon, from exile, right? And he's saying-
1: Completely different context.
0: Yeah. The voice is crying, in the wilderness, prepare the way. In other words, the, the ways, the paths that are returning are supposed to be straight. They're supposed to be ready for the people to come back.
1: From the exile back right. to Jerusalem. Right. So yeah. two different contexts. Yeah. And, you know, the even, I won't say too much more. There's a lot going on in this verse. Just one more linguistic note, because the Greek word used here for the wasteland really sounds like it has a root in asking or speaking. It's this place of speaking. The wasteland in Hebrew is literally the place of speaking. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. So there they are, right? They're the Pharisees and they asked him and said unto him why baptizest thou then if thou be not the Christ nor Elias neither that prophet now ben i have a different question what if you were the christ or elias or the prophet i still would ask you why baptizest thou <laughs> well that's
0: what is so interesting about this verse and i know we've we we discussed this a bit before cuz like baptism isn't necessarily you know, a strange thing in and of itself, but it should only be done if you're a specific person, right? Christ or Elias or, or whatever. Then it's okay. If you're not that person, then why are you baptizing? But your question, Christopher, is,
1: again, like you said, where does this baptism thing come from at all? I'll try to be brief about this. We're used to baptism. Of course John is baptizing people, right? But the question is, was anybody doing this before John? It's a strange thing, and yet we don't get in the text that anybody acts like it's strange. Now, again, this is after Jesus, when this is being written. I looked into this a little bit. I've heard baptism compared to mikveh, which is not actually an action. The action is tevilah. Mikvah is the place where you do it, right? So the tevila is a complete immersion for purification. And from what I read, this is not something that shows up until around this time, it is part of Jewish tradition that it goes all the way back to earlier times, but there's no evidence of that. So if you do sort of the more of a historical analysis, you can find, you can find, you know, in mikvehs, you can find the Essenes, right? At Qumran, they had one of these pools where you would do this. You can see how the concept could have evolved, and the Hellenization that we talked about in the intro to the New Testament episode can have something to do with this, right? There's an evolution from you to wash, right? That's in the Tanakh, right? It's in the Torah that you have to wash in certain circumstances. But then the Hellenization means that we now have these places where people sit and pour water on themselves and end up sitting in water up to their hips. And that's one idea. And then eventually this idea that you have to completely immerse yourself. And it's not clear when or whether you have to do this. This is something that if you're curious about it, you would start off by looking into this term, tevila, T-E-V-I-L-A-H.
0: You know, within our tradition, we have this idea that baptism did exist from the beginning. I think we've dealt with this in some other podcasts and discussing about this concept, how the idea behind baptism is is what we're looking at, but the actual ordinance or mode itself may not have stayed consistent over time. In fact, we know that it didn't stay consistent over time. And so, how we have this conceptualized and and performed within our culture and, and context could have been vastly different at, at different times and still approaching the same sort of concept or the same sort of intention, but it represented in a very different way.
1: I appreciate that, Ben. And it reminds me of the Waters of Mormon where – Speaking of baptism as a mode, we think of you baptize, you get baptized, and this means that now you're converted. Whereas at the waters of Mormon, it looks like you're converted, and therefore you get baptized. You then do something to commemorate that, right? Right. That's one example of how this changes over time. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. And the meaning of that is because that's a menial task, right? Slaves and servants are the ones who loosen shoe latchets. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is a town close to Jerusalem to the east, and it's on the west side of the Jordan I've been there. I think I've been everywhere in the Bible but Mount Sinai, Ben. We've talked about this, and you've been to Mount Sinai, right? Yeah. Well, what what is stated is Mount Sinai now. (laughs) Well, sure. Right. Yeah. We don't actually know where Mount Sinai is. Now we go into a section on the Lamb of God. This is another strange section. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This looks like a mixed metaphor, is what I'm going to call it, right, since we're talking about rhetoric here. The lamb is not something that's a sacrificial animal for sins, right? There's a Passover lamb. It seems like the Passover lamb and the sacrificial animals, which would be bulls, goats, sheep, are sort of getting conflated here in some sense. And so this is, again, John working his metaphors in strange ways. This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing him with water. Now, how does he not know him, Ben? Aren't they cousins?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm i not sure how what he means by that. I mean, again, we brought this up earlier. There seems to be some inconsistency here. If we were to try to reconcile this with the other Gospels, you know, Luke says that they're cousins or maybe second cousins or something like that, but they would have known each other according to that narrative before this time. Again, John is writing from a different perspective with a different purpose, so the idea that they're cousins and would have known each other is is not important to that.
1: So different writers, different purposes, it could be that they're not cousins. It could be that John doesn't know their cousins. Uh It could be that John knows their cousins and that's not what he's talking about. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Knew him not may not mean, you know, never heard of him or or never played tag with him as a kid or something. It may, you know, John didn't realize
1: who he was until now. Right. Right. And so for me, exactly. Right. So maybe he knew him as his cousin. He didn't know him as the Logos become right. flesh, right? There's so many ways to so do this. Too. So there's that too. Exactly. So my point in bringing this up is to get you to think about it. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, am I come baptizing with water. And John bare records saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. So Rudin's always going to bring out the, the spirit as the breath of life. This is the Ruach of God. The spirit of God, this is the same thing as the breath of life, the wind. We read the spirit and we think we know what it means. And that's why I love Rudin for, you know, bringing out these, taking these theologically loaded terms and sort of making you pay attention to them. And so I want to, I want to share that here, right? This idea that you can think about these terms differently. So this is the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God, the breath of life, descending from heaven like a dove and abiding upon him. And I knew him Not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost.
0: So who sent John to baptize?
1: He I don't know. I don't even know what baptism is, remember?
0: So, again, if we were trying to do some reconciliation, we'd, we'd have to say, Okay, it's an angel. Gabriel's the one doing all the heavy lifting in the Gospels here, so it's got to be Gabriel, right?
1: <laughs> I don't know. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Now, there's similar language used concerning Abraham's son Isaac when he is to sacrifice his son, right? The idea that we talked about the Son of God as an earthly title. It's a a title of a king, right? The king is the Son of God. The kings and Israel were sons of God. Israel, the people, were the sons of God, and by the way earlier you said something Ben about capital letters. Yeah. There aren't any capital letters. Exactly. In the in the Greek text that were that you know that these translations come from. So again, anytime you see something like a capital letter that's not in the original this is an interpretation, right? This is theologically laden interpretation. And so that's what we're getting. Now we have the first disciples of Jesus. We're back to John protesting too much because what happens? Again, the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. So here's, you know, John saying, that's the Lamb of God again. And the two disciples, these are the disciples of John, whom Jesus looks to be following in the other Gospels. And John here saying, No, 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 actually, John follows Jesus. And not only that, but when these the disciples of John see Jesus, they immediately go off and follow him, right? And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? This, you know, being interpreted master, Rabbi, what we're dealing with here is just a teacher, right? We're we're talking about someone. I think the reason master does resonate with me as a translation, even though it may give the wrong idea, is that. This is someone who really knows their stuff and who could lay out an argument, you know, when it comes to the scriptures. And I don't know how they would know this about him, right? So I don't know what they're saying and saying this, because that's what it means. Again, we're not getting everything here. We know what John is up to, but we don't exactly what he's up to or how he's doing it. We're learning as we read him, right? As we read him closely, but it's a strange text. It really is.
0: Well, I mean, in these earlier verses, it says the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. You know, it's possible that there was a certain way of speaking, way of teaching what he's talking about that says, oh, he's a rabbi, right? Like he Right. I mean, if he
1: really knows his stuff. Yeah, he really knows his stuff.
0: So, So, you know, the way that he's presenting things they're going to say, oh, he's he's a rabbi. Yeah.
1: And and you bring out what I really wanted to get to, which is we're not seeing in the story everything that happens. They heard him speak, but we didn't hear him speak. So not everything is told us, right? We're just told that they heard him speak. And from whatever they heard, they thought he was someone who really knew his stuff. He saith unto them, come and see. This this come and see shows up a couple of times and has the same feel as come follow me. Mm-hmm. I really like this. Come and see, right? We're being invited on a journey. Following Christ is a journey. Yeah, It's not just assenting to some belief about, which again, we get a lot in John, you know, that Jesus is going to give us these long speeches about who he is and we need to believe in him and he's the son of God. But this come and see, this to me feels like the earlier version of Jesus that we get in the other Gospels, who's saying these provocative things, right? Oh, you want to know more? Well, come and see, right? Come follow me. Come experience. Yeah. Have the experience. Come experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he said unto them, come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, I don't know why it matters that it's the 10th hour. Do you, Ben? I know earlier, what did I read? That he, the next day, right? The next day is just a, a way of, what is that? Like a transition in, in storytelling, right?
0: Remember in our intro, we talked about how a lot of these gospels, these are narratives that were written in order in some ways to to tie various sources and traditions and sayings together. So you didn't just have like, a book that just had sayings of Jesus, right? You actually had a story where there were context for all of these different sayings. To transition between the things, you say, oh, and then the next day, and then the next day, right? It's the way of telling the story. It's it's story rhetoric. It doesn't mean that like this literally historically happened the next day.
1: Yeah. So then the next verse, we start getting disciples called and named, and I just want to bring out something here to challenge the listener. As you go through the text, as you study the New Testament, as you follow along with us, if you choose to listen, keep this in mind. Who are the 12 disciples of Jesus? By the way, disciples just means followers, right? He has a lot more followers, but he's calling 12 to be one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a symbolic value to this number, but it's never actually clear who the 12 are. I've asked people to name the 12 disciples and, you know, they start with a lot of confidence and they don't end up finishing. <laughs> so, that's something to keep in mind as you go through the text. Uh, ask yourself. So, that's something to keep in mind as you go through the text. Ask yourself as you go along, okay, who are the get a piece of paper somewhere and write this down. Who are the 12 apostles? Who are the 12 disciples? So reading from verse 40, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Now this Christ, we all know Messiah is the Hebrew term. Christ is the Greek term. There's Messiah and Christos, and they mean the same thing. They mean anointed, we've been told. Well, sort of. It's something like smeared. <laughs> a smeared, a rubbing precious holy yeah, rub oil, oil on the king, right? But smeared doesn't sound quite right, so we'll, we'll go with anointed. <laughs> smeared uh, sounds really messy. <laughs> we'll, yeah, so we go with anointed, but really we go with Christ. We're going to get Christ and yeah. sometimes Messiah.
0: Yeah, so Christopher, we've had several times here where it says, which being interpreted is, right? And this is the the giveaway for English translation readers, that this is written in Greek, and so the Aramaic terms are being translated here for Greek readers who don't know
1: Aramaic. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Kephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Peter is like Petras, which is the Greek for stone. And behind that word is the Aramaic word, which is Kephas. And that means rock. So Kephas, butros, right? Pietro. If you go towards more of the Latin. How many languages do you have to know to do this podcast, man? <laughs> the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and finding Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. There it is. Follow me. The day following. <laughs> That's right. Now Philip was a bit Saida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and said unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Ben, here's one where I think I forgot to do my homework. I think I wrote a question for you and me. Where does it say in the Torah, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph?
0: <laughs> well, I think the intention of it here is we found the person who Moses wrote about in the Law and the Prophets, and that person is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph.
1: That makes sense. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. And I thought, whereas all the Israelites are full of guile, <laughs> but this is probably a reference back to Genesis, where the name Israel is given to Jacob and Jacob is deceitful. Oh, he's a trickster. That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, he's a trickster. He's deceitful. So he has guile. And so... This is a different kind of Israelite, one without guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Here's that motif of sitting under a tree, right? Yeah, there it is again. And the fig tree is a symbol of peace. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Now, it's interesting because the Son of God is the King of Israel, is the Son of God. Again, there's so many passages in the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament where the people of Israel are described as the son of God or God's son or child, right? Exodus, Hosea, or declare how God has been a father to the people. And there's even an unnamed king of Israel who's called the son of God in Psalms 2.7. God said, David is my firstborn son, and he will be the ruler of all the kings on earth. That's also in Psalms. And he's also told that one of his children would be God's son in 2 Samuel 7.14, 1 Chronicles 17.13. And then you have later prophets who speak of faithful members of the people of Israel as God's children in Isaiah and Hosea. I believe there's a psalm that says, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Yes, yes. So I don't know that, that the capital S that isn't in the original text I think John does want to bring out that Jesus is a unique son of God. I'm not even saying the unique son of God, but definitely a unique son of God. And yet, there are all these references to what it means to be a son of God. And then, of course, it's a political title. The son of man, that's a different story, right? That's another mm-hmm. yeah, we'll title get to that that's second. <laughs> more heavenly. We'll get there, yeah. Jesus answered and saith unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And I thought, greater things than what? Jesus being baptized? So it turns out that's answered later on in the text, right? In chapter 5, verse 20, chapter 14, verse 12, 520. For the Lord loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Although there, again, it just refers to greater works and doesn't tell you what they are still. <laughs> and then in John 14, 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my father. Okay, once again, they're just mentioned, so what are they? I don't know. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, and that you is plural, by the way, hereafter ye, which is singular, that English ye is singular, but the Greek behind is plural. There are two yous here. They're both plural. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There he is, the Son of Man. And we have Jacob's ladder all over again, too, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: there's that. But this is also that term, the Son of Man. That's, uh, That's going back to Daniel. Could be potentially some Ezekiel stuff, but most likely Daniel here in a theological sense, especially when you're talking about angels.
1: I wanted to say earlier something about the fig tree, you know, that I'd mentioned it's a symbol of peace and prosperity that we can find in 1 Kings 4.25, Micah 4.4. You have Jacob, who's called Israel, right, again, and he has this dream, this Jacob's Ladder dream, right, that we call Jacob's Ladder, of the, of, that we see here, I think, a reference to that, right? The angels of God ascending and descending as the heavens are open, but they're doing it here upon the Son of Man.
0: Yeah, so this term, Christopher, this phrase, the Son of Man, in the Old Testament, this comes up a couple times. Ezekiel uses it, but it's indicating a mortal. I, I think in this context here, Jesus, it doesn't seem likely that this is the intention of this term for Jesus. He isn't necessarily reminding others that he himself is a mere mortal, although there are other points in the gospel where that might be the case of the use of the term. The Son of Man here is theologically loaded. So conventionally, this would have been read as Jesus referring to himself in the third person as a fulfillment of prophecy by Daniel. I think it's kind of odd that he starts off this verse I say unto you, you know, like in the first person, and then switches to a third person referring to himself. Well, it could be that he doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, it could be that he doesn't, exactly. So, one of the theories here by Ehrman is that Jesus isn't referring to himself, but is referring to some other future eschatological, you know, like end times figure that he is calling the son of man, and he's not calling himself the son of man. It's difficult to tell exactly, but there is this strange change Of person here from a first person to a third person. And if Jesus is talking about himself, it's just an odd way to do it.
1: Well, Ben, that brings us to the end of John 1. Yeah. (laughs) Man, I hope it's helpful to you, the listener. You know, thank you, Ben, for being with me. I couldn't have done it without you again. I know you've done it without me when you had to. I haven't had to do that yet, thankfully. I'm so grateful for all of the volunteers at Latter day Peace Studies. I'm thankful for you, Ben, my co-host, for Riley, my co-host on our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation, and also Des. Thank you, Des. I'm grateful for our editors, Kyle and Michael, for putting up with our long episodes. And <laughs> Now we're even reading the text into the record. Again, let us know how you like that. If you want to throw some donations our way, we'll pass it on to the editors. Thank you to Bethany, who works tirelessly on our social media presence and puts together some you know beautiful quote images you can find on our Facebook page and share on your Facebook page. What's that again, Ben?
0: Yeah, the name of the group, Christopher, is Latter-day Nonviolence, Pacifism, and Peace Studies. I think we probably need to look into changing that because it's hard to remember and it's a little long. It's great for SEO, right? Yeah, I guess. The Facebook page is just Latter-day Peace Studies. And so you can go and like that page and see the posts. And if you're on Facebook much, you can request to be part of the Latter-day Nonviolence, Pacifism, and Peace Studies group, which is a private group
1: thanks for listening and for reaching out to us. We received so many messages from you and and we appreciate that you letting us know how this lands for you, how you're sharing it with your friends, how you share it with your family and, and, you know, gospel doctrine and Sunday school and whatnot. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing and for reaching out to us. Have a great week.